Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me in your, with me in your testaments to the book of Galatians. I want to just read four passages of Scripture as a background for our discussion tonight. In the introduction of the letter, Paul is writing, Paul an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me. And then he gives this brief little statement, so powerful. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, of course, he doesn't use the word cross, but that's exactly what he's talking about, isn't it? When he speaks of Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us, from the present evil age. He can't get through his introduction without referring to the cross. And he says that the purpose of it was that sacrifice of Christ was to rescue us from the evil age of which we are a part so we do not have to be determined by the context in which we live. We can be determined by the Spirit of God who dwells within us. Now the second passage is at the tail end of the second chapter. And Paul is speaking about the fact we are not saved by works of the law. As Bill has been talking, we are saved by grace through faith and that alone. Notice beginning with verse 17, this paragraph of six verses. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate or set aside or pervert the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So you see, he says, as far as I'm concerned, there was a cross for him. But when I came to follow him, I found a cross for me. He died for me, and I died to everything but him. So that now I live, but I don't live for me. I live for him, and his life lives within me, and it is his life within me that determines who I am and how I live. Now look at the fourth chapter and this priceless passage at the beginning of the fourth chapter where he talks about the privilege that is ours of Bill's been talking about adoption, assurance, witness. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. 
So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because your sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Now you notice the heart of this. And the thing that makes it move is the recognition of the cross. You notice that he says that the cross is the thing toward which all of human history pointed from the creation. So that even when God created man, he had the cross in mind because he knew that Adam was going to sin. But when the time had fully come, God's time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those that are under the law. So Christ came to redeem us and to set us free from our bondages. Now the last passage is in the sixth chapter. And it comes at the end of the epistle. You notice he the book is permeated with the assumption, the presupposition of the cross. Let's just begin with verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Don't you want to get acquainted with Paul and find out all the limitations and problems that he had? Uh, why did he have to write with uh, uh, his own hand large letters? Because he had trouble eyesight-wise, apparently. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's interesting that the cross and all of human effort, apart if it isn't in relation to the cross, there is always tension between it and conflict. That's the reason there's so much controversy in the church, because there's still those of us in the church that are under the control to some extent of the flesh instead of of the spirit. Because where the spirit is in control, he points to Christ, and in Christ is our unity, our oneness. So he says, the only reason they try to get you to add something to the cross, add something to Christ, is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. There is a price to be paid for obedience to Christ. Not even those who are circumcised really obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh, so that if they set a standard in front of you that's impossible to meet, then they can glory in your impossibility, your your failures and that alibis for theirs. So Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation and the only way that new creation can come is through the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. Now, Father, we need you to instruct us. We cannot understand the depths of your grace apart from the illumination of your spirit. And there's no human that can give that illumination to another. Unless you accompany the preaching of the word, there is nothing but darkness. So tonight we pray that you would accompany it 
but do even more than that, and let there be an inner voice to match the outer voice heard in the ear. And let each one of us listen and heed the voice that speaks within, the voice of our very God through Christ, through his Spirit, and we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we talked about the fact that on Calvary there were three crosses. There was one cross to show us how close a person can get to Christ and miss it. Now we need to hear that in our day because there is a lot of universalism that is preached and that is taught where around our uh, the church there are people who believe that everybody is going to be saved and God would never send anybody to hell. Now that's a half that's a half truth. It is true that God will never send anybody to hell, but it is not true that everybody is going to be saved. Because if a person turns his back on Christ and refuses to recognize Christ, that person will die outside of Christ, and the one who dies outside of Christ is lost. What's significant to me is that Christ did not turn and make a further attempt to reach this fellow. He let him go when the man had made his commitment. But when the one who wanted help returned for it, he gave it to him. Now, you see, not only how close you can get and miss him, but you see how late you can wait and receive him. And we said the beauty about that is that you can never give up hope on anybody. But better than that, it is the priceless example to let us see what really the essence of salvation is. You know, uh, you can take most of us, and most of us have something in our lives that can commend us to God one way or another when we uh, come to God. The worst sinner in the world can tell you something about himself that's decent and good. But this lets us know that none of that counts. There is nothing that is saving but Christ and Christ alone. That's the essence of salvation. And if you add anything to him, you have corrupted the gospel. There is, there is something about it that when you add anything to Christ, you have destroyed the very power of Christ. Now that's the reason Paul is so passionate about the cross and about the blood of Christ and the centrality of Christ because he knows that the human tendency is for us to say, yes, thank God for the greatness of Christ and then we try to add to it one thing or another. But Christ must be Savior, Christ alone. He must be central and no one must share that throne and nothing must share that throne with him. Now, that's the reason for the central cross, isn't it? To make it possible inside me for Jesus to get the throne in my life and be in total control. He is, as the scripture says, as we mentioned, he is the true man, he is the God man, and in him we see the heart of God, and in him we see the potential that is in you and me. God wants us to have the image that's in Christ restored in us, but how can he get that in anything as perverted and twisted and as corrupted as we are? That is the reason for that central cross and the death of Christ. He came the last Adam to undo the damage done by the first Adam. Now, I wish that uh go through all of these uh, 8,000, 9,000, how many hymns are there of Wesley and chase through one subject for me. I'd love to see somebody do it. And that is the concept of salvation through Christ's cross and shed blood as the restoration of the original creation and the perfecting of the original creation. Just let me mention a familiar verse to you. In love divine, all love's excelling. Joy of heaven, 
to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling. You know it, but notice the second verse. Finish then thy great salvation. Perfectly restored. So what you have is a restoration in Christ. It's not a patch-up job, and we preach it as a patch-up job. God, Christ, died to do more for us than most of us have ever dreamed. I found myself in recent, in the last year or so, coming to the end of services occasionally and saying, did Jesus die to do more for you than you've let him do? Or is what you've let him do in your life enough to satisfy you that he was right to go to the cross? And it's interesting, you can sort of sense a holy hush fall over that. Because there's a sense in most of us, we know jolly well that if we let him, he could do more. And the more that he could do is why he died. So there is a sense in which we, we do not let him do all that he died to do for us. We are taking lightly and vainly the very cross of Christ. We should let him do in us what he died to do for us. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Now I notice that one verse in one of the songs, number 19, it is the one that begins, O for a heart to praise my God. My heart, thou knowest, can never rest till thou create my peace, till of my Eden repossess from every sin I cease. Now there it is, you see, he says, I need to have my Eden, what what God made me to be in the beginning. I need to have that repossessed in me to where the sin is undone. Now the damage of the sin will not be undone, but the sin itself can be undone and removed. You and I will be damaged creatures until the resurrection. But there is a difference between the damage of sin and the presence of sin. And Wesley saw that in a unique way. Now, we do not always see that, and our language mixes us up on it, but he differentiated between the damage that sin brings and the presence of sin, and he said the blood of Christ can cleanse a person and make him clean so that uh, the Eden is repossessed. Now, what happened? Uh, what was Adam's sin that he uh, created so much damage? In recent years, I have, in the last couple of years, I, that has come to me in a fresh way. I found myself uh, look, thinking of this. You think of all of the hellishness of human history. Christianity has more interest in history than any other religion in the world. We say that God started it, God ends it, God controls it, and he's good. And look at what a mess it is. So how do you explain it if it's his, his creation, if he started it? if he's going to end it, and if he's in total control today without rival or competitor, and look what a mess it is, and he's supposed to be good. How do you support that? Well, we say Adam and Eve were responsible for making the mess of human history. You'd think it would be some incredible evil that they introduced into the world. But you know, if you read the story, it is an incredibly simple thing. They turned their attention away from the one from whom they came to the fruit on a tree. And when they turned their attention away from him to the fruit on the tree, there was enough potential in that to produce Auschwitz and the Holocaust. 
because you see they were turning away from the source of all that is good and they were turning to an alternative to the source of all that is good and there is nothing good if it is out if it is not related to God you know I thank God I had the chance to teach Old Testament for a while wish I could have taught it longer but one of the things that surprised me in the Old Testament is the Old Testament concept of evil. Do you know that the Old Testament says there is nothing evil in itself? Evil is always a good misused. There's an old anthropological saw that two people doing the same and two people doing the same thing may not be doing the same thing. One may be pure, perfect love, and the other one may be rape. You can take that and run with it on all the way down. Two people doing the same thing may not be doing the same thing, you see. And so the Old Testament says God created the universe. He created everything that's in it. He's good. Everything he made is good. And if you rightly relate it to him, there is nothing that will be evil. But you can take the best thing in the universe and take it away from God and make it an end in itself and it becomes a, de a, a demonic force in your life and a destructive power in human experience and in human society. And so they simply turn their face away to the other. You know, now my favorite definition of sin is uh, not a transgression of God's law or any of that. It is, it is in the passage in Isaiah 53 where we're getting the picture of Christ the suffering servant where he, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. You know the next line? We have turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And all that sin is is my way when it's in conflict with his way. Now I have a way, and my way is perfectly good when it's not in conflict with his will. But when my way is in conflict with his will, my way then becomes evil. Now it's interesting, the Hebrew for the turned in that passage in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, and it simply means wandered away, stumbled away from our where we're supposed to be, stray. But then the next part, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, and the Hebrew word is the Hebrew word for faith. The Hebrew word for face is panim. The Hebrew verb for face is pana. And the verb is panita, paninu. We have turned everyone to our own way. You know, all you have to do to account for all of the evil in human history is to have humankind turn their faces away from him. Because when you turn your face away from him, you're you lose more than God. When you lose God, you lose more than God. Now let me run through some things that are very quickly. He's the source of all light, isn't he? It shouldn't be surprising then that when I turn away from him, I find myself shadow in shadow. And if I keep on with my back to him, I get deeper into shadow. And if I go far enough, I get into darkness and then into outer deeper darkness and then into outer darkness. And you know, Jesus term for hell. Jesus' term for hell is simply outer darkness. Hell is not a place that God prepared to throw people he was angry with that didn't satisfy him. Hell is the end result of a life 
live away from God where you lose God and you lose all that goes with God and you're left with yourself. That's hell. Okay. Now, he's not only the source of all life. It's interesting he is the truth, isn't he? And you know, if you don't have the truth, nothing is certain, is it? If you don't have light, you can't understand. He's the key to everything, and so there's confusion when you turn your back on him. There's not a person in this crowd who's thought deeply about what it means in his own experience at the times when he's turned his back on God. Confusion always comes. But when you turn to him, light. Now, he's the source of truth. Truth is where you is where you get reality, and reality is secure. You know, uh, I remember when, must have been about five years ago, I thought, I wonder where the word truth came from in English. It's interesting, the language we use, we never think about. So I checked in an old uh, Oxford Unabridged Dictionary and found that the word truth comes from the, uh, from the old Indo-European word for a tree. And I thought, how do you get from tree to true? It's interesting, the word, the word trim comes from the same source, from tree. You know, properly proportioned, whether it's a tree or a beautiful girl or anything else, a beautiful building, properly proportioned, or even a cloud in the sky, a beauty, but truth and beauty always go together. So I thought, how do you get from true from tree to true? We got two old oak trees in our front yard. And they're, I, as I, some of you have heard me say, six months out of the year I love them because they're beautiful, and six months I hate them because they're the kind who drop their leaves one at a time. So you rake leaves every week, uh, this kind of thing. But you know, one thing about those trees that I've noticed, and when I thought about them, I understood where the English word true. The one thing I've known when I went to sleep at night is I've never had a question in my life where those trees would be the next day. Not one of them has ever moved. Now, that's what I like about truth. And if you get God at the center, things get stable. And they get dependable. And there is a certainty that comes. All right? He not only is uh, the source of uh, truth, but he is, he is the source of the sacred. And when you lose him, everything loses its sacredness. You may try to save, and they're, they're, everybody makes an effort because it's very difficult to live without something being sacred. It's hard to build a marriage without something being sacred, isn't it? That's one of the places where the Christian has an untold advantage. It's hard even to build a friendship where there isn't anything sacred, isn't it? It's hard to build anything of significance where there's nothing sacred, but he's the source of all that's holy. And when you lose him, the profane, profanation comes. And he's the source of of you, as we were talking earlier about how can God love people like this. The difference between the biblical God and all other gods is that love is not just something he does, it's what he is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their relationship is one of self-sacrificing love for each other, self-giving love to each other. Allah loves people, it's something he does. Buddha loves, loved people, something he did. But our God love is what he is. It, he is the source of it all. And if you want to know love in your life, you're going to have to turn to him. It will be lust if it is otherwise. It'll be this way and it'll be in bondage and enslavement. Well, when you find him, you will find love. And uh, 
it is releasing and freeing. The alternative to it is alienation. I remember how I smiled the first time I read in C.S. Lewis. And what is it, in Screwtape Letters, when the guy was looking for Napoleon, and he found him out a billion, trillion miles out in space, headed away as hard as he could go to get away from everything and everybody. It's aloneness, alienation. Now, and he's the source of life. It's no accident then that when I turn my back on God, death begins. And it is the end for the person who does not know him. But when you turn your 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 face toward him, he is the source of life. And life comes, his life enters into you. And a life enters into you that can transcend physical death. It is an eternal life, and it is a life that death cannot touch. And so you... Uh, and uh, I remember one of Wesley's veterans, Thomas, uh, Tommy Walsh, who when he was dying, they gathered in his room and prayed with him, and, and he slipped off into unconsciousness. And there was one fellow left in the room, and suddenly he sat up in his unconsciousness and said, The bridegroom cometh and calleth for me, and I must go. You know that uh, poem of uh, John Donne's Death Be Not Proud? If you've never read that poem, Death Be Not Proud, you ought to read it because you can scoff at death. The cross scoffs at death. Now, when you turn away from God, you lose all these things that go with him, but when you turn to him, they're all yours. He must be the center of gravity in our lives. Now, the tragedy is that when you turn away from him, the pull that draws you toward him is shifted to the thing to which you've turned your attention. When he is the center of your life, there is a pull that draws you to him. But when you turn your attention to anything else, you find the center of gravity is shifted and the thrust of your being is towards something other than him. And that is bondage. You're on a downhill slope, and you have no power to turn it around and get back. And only an act of God can make that change. And that's the reason the scripture speaks about sin as bondage. That's the reason it speaks about a, a, our state as one of death. It speaks about our state as one of hopelessness, because there is nothing we can do to undo that orientation toward the thing toward which we have turned. And, of course, the thing toward which we have turned is really not the tree with the fruit that's good for food and good to the eyes to look at and enough to make one wise. It wasn't the tree that did it. It was when they turned their attention away and turned to themselves. And ever since, we have been oriented this way. And there's not a thing, a person untouched by grace can do that is not contaminated by self-interest. And there is something about human relationships, all relationships, when they're contaminated by self-interest, they're corrupting and defiling. And God wants to undo that corruption in us so that we can have relationships that are pure and that are clean. Now, uh, see, it comes when you add anything to Christ. When you get fractured vision. When you add anything to Christ, that thrust comes and you've corrupted the gospel.
Now, it's interesting in the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with this. And he deals with four things that uh, have corrupted it, the gospel for these Galatians. He had gone into Galatia and preached, and these people had been converted. They had found Christ. The church had been established. They loved Paul. Paul loved them. He said they loved him enough that they would have actually taken out their eyes and given them to him if he need, if, if they could have, which means it's obvious Paul had problems with eyesight. But uh, there was a love relationship, and it was very precious to him, and now he finds there's a chasm between him and them. Now, what is it that has created the chasm? He says, you have, there, there are those who have come in and told you, it is good to believe in Christ, but you need also to be circumcised. Now, you know, I can understand the case for that. Because you see, who is Jesus? He's not only the son of David, he is the seed of Abraham. And so he is Abraham's child. And he says, if you believe in me, believe in Christ, you will be Abraham's child. And what is the mark of a child of Abraham in circumcision? So they said, uh, now you've believed in Christ great. You're a child of Abraham. And now you need to be circumcised to prove it. You know, it's remarkably similar to what we do with baptism, isn't it? Remarkably similar to what we do on occasion with baptism. But he says, this is a sign of a child of Abraham. But the interesting thing is, Abraham was not a child of Abraham. Abraham was a child of God. And Abraham's seed is supposed to be a child of God, not a child of Abraham. And the child of Abraham is supposed to be a child of God. So now that Christ has come, we're to be brothers of Christ, and circumcision is not the sign of that relationship. They said also you need uh, in all uh, you need to keep the sacred seasons of the Jews. Now you know that Jewish life was built around certain festivals, built around the Passover, built around the equivalent of Pentecost feast of weeks. It was built around the fall festival, uh, harvest festival, where there was the atonement. Uh, they were the, their life was built around this. Now they're saying you ought to keep these. And Paul has said, no, you don't need to keep these because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them. They were signs that pointed to him. And now that he has come, the day for those is past. And you don't have to worry about those. Keep your attention on Christ and don't let anything compete with that. And then he said, the fourth thing is, you no, they, they, they were concerned about food laws too, eating kosher stuff. And the fourth thing was the law. If you read Galatians carefully, you will notice that uh, the big enemy in the book of Galatians is the law. The law symbolizes circumcision. If a person is circumcised, then he ought to keep the whole law. If you start keeping the festivals, then you ought to keep the whole law. If you live by the food laws, you ought to keep the whole law. So the law is sort of the symbol for all of it. And Paul says the law is the enemy and it's death. But the interesting thing is it's an interesting enemy because God's the one who gave it. And here, if I uh, let me see if I can make this clear. It's interesting that when any good is taken away from its divine purpose, it becomes an evil. One of the Psalms, Psalm 16 says, 
I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And then he defines what it means to have Jehovah, Yahweh as your Lord. God is your Lord. He says, I have no good apart from you. The Hebrew is even more cryptic. Not good. Nothing good beside you. If you take anything out of the will of God, it's no longer good. And do you know that even the law, if you take it out, the will of God becomes an evil? You know how the, how the Hebrew priests and the scribes, they developed, what was it, 600 and some regulations. And if you keep those 600, you've kept the Ten Commandments and you've kept the law. Can your preacher start in every day worrying about 600 and some? Coming to the end of the day and checking off a list of 600 and some? And that was the, the, the law was corrupted. Now, uh, the law, if you read Paul, you'll find uh, that one moment he says, it's, uh, if, you, if, you, if you try to be saved by the law, you're lost. And then the next thing he'll tell you is, the law is good because God gave it. Now, in what way is it good? It's good in that it, it makes us conscious of what our sins are. You know that it's not saving because Abraham never heard of the law. And God wants us to be like Abraham, children of Abraham who believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And 400 years later, God gave the law. So you had 400 years of believers before the law came along. Why did he give the law? I think he gave the law to give definition to what a believer's life ought to be. You know, you go to a marriage counselor or to a marriage seminar. And they tell you certain things. If you do these things, your marriage will work better. But that's not what makes your marriage. It's to, it's to tell you how to improve your marriage. That's not what makes you married, that you do those things. You're already married when you start doing those things. Now, he says, I'll give you the law so you can understand better how to keep the right relationship to me. Now, there's no question, but in the law, we get our consciousness of sin. Paul said, I wouldn't have known what covetousness was if I hadn't had the law. But there's something else. What about the Ten Commandments? Are they so forbidding? Uh, the longer I live with them, the more beautiful they are as a single expression of what God is after. Take, for instance, thou shalt have no other gods before me. There was a time coming from my background when I thought, our oh, God's jealous. He wants the first place in your life. Doesn't want any rivals. And he's not going to like it if he has any competition. That's not why that's in there. Thou shalt have no other gods before me is in there because there aren't any other gods. So he just simply makes a statement about reality. Now he says, you may try to get some other things to play the role of God, but they won't do it because there's only one God. I'm the only one that is. I'm the eternal one. Now, how harsh is that for him to tell you what reality is? And he says you're not supposed to make any graven image. And all he's saying is there's nothing in the creation good enough to reflect me, to, to represent me. may reflect me, but not to represent me. And if you take anything and put it up in my place, then you've lost me. Because I'm God and you have to let me be God if I'm to have relationship to you. I can't play any other role with you but God. 
And if I'm going to have a relationship with you, you've got to let me be God. So don't put any of my creatures up along with me. And he says, don't take my name in vain. Now, I'm not sure I understand all of this. I'm sure I don't understand all of this. But taking his name in vain, his name is a very sacred thing. The scriptures indicate it's the way we're saved. You know, uh, which means we're not supposed to use it vainly, profanely, or insincerely. I think I got help on that when uh, I read an article of April a year ago in the, in the New York Times. It was a it was a report of a conference held in Washington D.C. on babies from one to six months and from six months to twelve months on the first 12 months of an infant's life. And the interest was how much the first 12 months have to do with the person's IQ. Now, you know, I'd always been, I'd always tended to believe that when you were born, you had it, and there wasn't anything you could do to really change it. Uh, that was sort of common in educational circles in most of my experience. But here was the thing that said the first six months of a baby's life may have a whale of a lot to do with his IQ. They said that uh, the vocabulary that a baby hears in the first six months of its life has a serious impact on the IQ. That uh, they did a study of infants born in welfare homes, blue-collar homes, middle-class homes. The infant born in the welfare home in the first six months would hear 600 words on average. The infant born in the, in the blue-collar home, on average, would hear 1,600 words in the first six months. And the uh, kid born in a middle-class home in the first six months, on average, would hear 2,200 words. And on that, there was a significant difference in IQ. And they went on to try to figure why. And what they concluded was that the synapses in the brain are not completed, they're not connected when the infant is born. And what it takes to connect those synapses is words. Now the infant may not know what a word is. In fact, he may not even be able to pronounce it. But he hears a word and he says, ah, that relates this to this. And IQ, intelligence is the ability to relate things rightly. So they say, if you give them the right vocabulary, they will, their world will grow. And with the growing of their world of relationships, their, their intellectual ability will increase. It's interesting, they said, a radio won't help. Run it all the time. TV won't help. Run it 24 hours a day. It won't help. Nothing, no words help unless they're connected to a human face and an adjacent voice. You know, I thought, the human brain waits for the word. Because the word is what helps the person put everything together. And if you play fast and loose with the name of God, there is no way for you anybody to put his world together. But if you've got God right, then everything else will come into place. What wisdom in these ancient bits of truth? And he says, the Sabbath, keep it. 
you need to recognize that every minute you've got comes from me. You can't produce a second of it. And so set apart that day to recognize, one day in seven, to recognize that I'm the one. God is the one who gives. Let God be God in your life. You know, I've never known a person who really kept it. Now, you can keep it legalistically and make it harsh and make it so that it uh, is a pain in the neck and a destructive force. But I've never known anybody who really counted for God who didn't have a respect for the Sabbath. I remember I had, uh, I got to know Hudson Armerding, who was president of, of Wheaton College. And really, he and his wife, great people. And he told me about when he was a, when he was a doctoral student at the University of Chicago. And his uh, final comprehensives were on, uh, on a Monday morning. They began at 8 o'clock. And uh, he said, uh, man, the week before, I worked like furious. He said, I worked until Saturday night. I worked until midnight and thought, shall I work on Sunday? And I decided, no, I'll keep my Sabbath as an expression of my gratitude to God and my faith in him. So he said, I worked until midnight Saturday night and quit. And Sunday, never looked at a thing. He said, Monday morning, I walked into my doctoral exam and sat down at 8 o'clock, and the first question was on what I'd studied from 7 until 12 on Saturday night. Now you say, is God paying a person for being good? Oh, no, no. But God responds to a person who gives God his place and lets God be what he's supposed to be. Now, all I want to say is you can go through all of these commandments and there's nothing harsh in them. You know what Wesley called them? Wesley said that they were promises. They were not burdens, they were promises. That you can, if you will get God central, then uh, that, that, that the cross of Christ can do something for me to where I can keep the first commandment where he can be God in my life and nothing else compete with him. And where my language can be what it ought to be. And where my time can be spent the way it ought to be. And my family relationships can be what they ought to be. And my relationships with other people and respect for their lives can be right. And my handling of my sexuality can be pure and clean. My handling of property can be where I am free to use it for the glory of God and not let it be something that binds me or controls me and where my language is such that nobody is damaged by what I say in his absence. You know, I love that commandment. Wouldn't it be good if your reputation, if you were as, your reputation were safe in your, ab as safe in your absence as it is in your presence? Have you ever walked in a place and listened to the con, notice the conversation change as you walk in? You know, a Christian community, a person is saved when he's absent. That's all that the scripture is saying. But the thing I wanted to get to is, do you notice? The first four have to do with our relationship to God. The fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth have to do with the relationship with our family and with those about us. And then the tenth one has to do with us. Thou shalt not covet. I wish I knew how to preach on that. Because Christ died to save me from covetousness. Do you know how, how few people are saved from covetousness? You go to annual conference. And you say, where are you going this year? 
You know how Methodist preachers think? Conferences are trying. And the purpose of life is to get as high as you can get. And you measure everybody where he is on that scale. And the guy tells you where he's going and you say, ah. Or else you say, wish I were. And everybody wants the choice spot. You remember the disciples? Could we have the right hand and the left? <laughs> now let me ask you. Do you know when you come to the tenth one, you're right back to the first one? When you get to the tenth one, you're right back to the first one, except you're at the negative end of it. on that church and when they did they lost it all if I could just be saved from covetousness I'd be saved <laughs> do you know the blood of Christ can save you from covetousness save Paul do you know what he wrote to the Philippians at the end of his life I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content If he sends good, I rejoice in it. If he sends trouble, I know there's value in it, creative value in it. So I welcome it. I met a Romanian, Joseph Tsan, who was being persecuted brutally by the, by the Romanian government. And he came home broken one day, fell on his face and said, God, I can't take any more. God said, read the book on the shelf. He said the communists had taken everything he had except two books. One was at home and this one was on the shelf. So there's no problem which one to read. He said, I pulled it down and opened it up and it was E. Stanley Jones' Abundant Living. And when I opened it up, the page my eyes hit was How to Live Above Your Circumstances. He said, I said, Lord, if I'm to live above my circumstances, you've got to do something in my life you haven't done yet. I'll never forget, he looked at me very quietly and said, I got on my face and said, can you? And the Lord said, yes, and said, Kinlaw, you did. He said, I walked back into those interrogations where they were interrogating him up to eight hours a day, five days a week, oftentimes with a gun on the table in front of him loaded. And he said, when I walked back in, I was free. And he said, it's funny, the change that took place. Before that, I'd been the one in trauma. And after that, it was the communist who was in trauma because he'd lost control of me. And so he said, one day he spun on me in great anger and said, Joseph, you're stupid. I guess you'll never learn. I guess the only thing we can do is just go ahead and kill you. And he said, I found myself saying, he didn't think it up, it came from God within him. I understand. That's your ultimate weapon. When you've used everything else and it's failed, you can always kill. But you know, I have an ultimate weapon. <laughs> he said, what's that? Well, he said, yours is to kill, mine's to die. And when I die, I'm not worse off. I'm a lot better off. But you, every tape of every sermon I've preached spread across Romania will be sprinkled with my blood and you'll have a lot more of a mess of a time with me dead than alive. Kamiya said, take him out. He said it wasn't long until I heard through the grapevine that the communists were saying, Joseph's crazy. He wants to be a martyr. We're not stupid. 
Joseph said to me, Kinlaw, I couldn't even talk him into killing him. <laughs> now, let me tell you, I said that. Many, many of you have heard me tell that before, but I heard that to tell the next thing. I said that to tell the next thing. Joseph Stein talked to a friend of mine who said, would you be interested in more of your young people going to a holiness college? He said, I'd be very interested in my young people going to a holiness college. He said, why? He said, when the communists had control in Romania, there was no middle ground. You had to go one way or the other. But he said, now the communism's back is broken. There's a middle ground. And if we can't find something in our hearts to do internally for us what the communists did externally, we're going to become just like you. And if there's an experience of grace that can set a man free, so he's content to be what God wants him to do, be and let God do with him what he pleases and let the first commandment be true. God is God in his life and that's enough. He said if we can find people like that, we can beat the, we can beat the day. Now that's what he's talking about. Coming to the place where God is central. He has no competitor. He has no rival in my life. He has complete control. And when I get there, I like it. And I don't want anything else. Now, uh, that's why he died to get me there, where I can be wholly his. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the greatest passage on atonement in the New Testament, where he says in verse 14, the love of Christ constrains us. Paul referred to it last night. The love of Christ constrains us, for we just judge that one died for all. And if one died for all, then all are dead. But we who live, now that Christ died for us, but we who live, to live not for ourselves, but for him who died for us and for us again. We're his, and we're his hope. Now, unfortunately, conversion doesn't guarantee that, does it? Because you can be a Christian and have a divided heart. And the division means there are two there. And when the two there, the power of Christ begins to diminish. And the power of the other one begins to increase. But if you'll come to him, he can take the power of the other out. He can break it and he can increase the power of his spirit until he fills you. And then Christ is supreme in a, in a person's life and the person is free. And he knows what Wesley talked about by perfect love, a heart, whole, given to God. Now, you know, uh, that's what he died to do. I wonder how he feels when he sees the division in our hearts. wonder how he feels when he finds rivals in our affection. He looks at his hands and says, sees the scars and says, didn't I die to do more for them than that? I died to make them wholly mine. But you know, that's not a, a threat. That's a promise. And that's the fullness of grace. It may be that in our midst there's somebody who says, I really don't know what it means to be holy His. You can be as born again as any person who's ever been born again and have a divided heart. I'd been a Christian five years. And God said to me, Ken Law, I want it all. Like Beth was talking about 
Connie. And I said, Lord, sure, Lord, you can have it all. He said, what's that on the corner there? I said, that's my thumb. He said, well, how can this be all mine when your thumb's on it? I said, you mean I can't even keep a single finger in my life? He said, not if it's all mine. He said, do you know better how to run that than I do? Well, I said, no. He said, are you afraid to trust me? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, it's safe. He said, why don't you take it off? And I tried and found I couldn't. Because when you let anything divide your affection for him, there's a downward pull that you can't conquer. Only he can do it. And I said, I can't. Can you do it? Can you help me? What do I do? You know, I had this incredible feeling that my eternal destiny was hanging at that moment. Now, I don't know what you do with your theology on that, but I don't have a question in my mind but that my eternal destiny. I knew I was born again, but there was something inside me that knew that if I kept my finger on my life and divide, kept my devotion divided to him, that ultimately this would not be a corner, it would be the whole shooting match. Because the flesh and the spirit are in hostility to each other. And somebody's got to win. And I said, God, can you, can you break my hold on me? And he said, you let me crack your knuckles hard enough and I can. And so I said, go to it. Most important decision I ever made. And you know, he can set you free from you. And when he sets you free from you, you find out you're what you're supposed to be. Is there division in your heart? It'd be a shame for you to come to a place like this and uh, let it stay there. You need to look up and say, Lord, I want my heart to be holy. I like what you've given me. I want it all. I'm glad you've got part of me. I want you to have all of me. Possess me. Possess me. Whatever it takes, possess me. How do you get there? You know, I'd like to suggest something to you. If you've got any uncertainty inside you that you've come to that place of consecration, commitment, surrender, really surrender is a better word than consecration. Consecration has the implication that we're doing, connotation. Surrender is, we finally let him, willing to let him possess us. And that's better theology. But you know, what I'd like to suggest is, you know, I think we're not honest enough with each other. Because uh, the average person, if he'd go to his best friend and say, you know, I'd like to be this kind of person. And I'd like for you to pray for me. The chances are the other guy will say, do you know I'd like to be the same thing? Would you pray for me? And I don't believe anybody gets free until he confesses to somebody. Maybe done in a public invitation. But you know, I expect a better way is when you find somebody that knows you and says, you know me. I'd like to tell you, I want to be holy, God. Would you pray for me? I'll tell you, I believe light will come. Certainty will come. Holiness will come. Love will come. Fullness of life will come. Why don't you use these hours together for a private prayer like that?